again, I want to extend a very warm welcome to you, especially if you're new. Um, Like it was mentioned earlier, I serve as the campus minister at UCSB, and if you're unfamiliar with what RUF is, it's Reformed University Fellowship, and it's our denomination's ministry to the college campus. And so it's, it's very unique in some ways because our presbytery um, hires our campus ministers and sends us to do the work of the church on a college campus. And so I have the uh, distinct privilege of, of being an ordained minister doing the work of the church um, at a place like UCSB. And you're going to hear a little bit more about that if you uh, stay for Sunday school. I'm going to speak kind of about what it looks like to be a campus minister at, at UCSB, so I would hope that you stay. But anytime I get a chance to go and preach anywhere in our presbytery, um, I always want to say thank you uh, to the churches that support the work that we do. And I want it to be an encouragement, a source of encouragement for you, because even though you may not physically be involved in the work, as in you're not there on a a weekly basis helping me and my intern do the work that we do, Uh, you are participating. Uh, You are a partner with us in ministry. You actually are the hands and feet of Jesus through RUF on the college campus at UCSB. You support us, um, not just financially, but through your prayers. And I would be remiss if I didn't say thank you. Um, It's very humbling to know that folks in Bakersfield are concerned about the work of the gospel in Santa Barbara. And it's the same for churches like in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, who support the work. They're concerned about the gospel and the kingdom of God going forth on the West Coast. So I always want to take the opportunity to say thank you. Um, It really, from the bottom of my heart, both from my wife and I, we appreciate your support. So with that out of the way... If you have a Bible, you can turn with me uh, to 1 John. If you're unfamiliar with where 1 John is, if you kind of go towards the end of the Bible and you get to Revelation, go back a couple of books and and there you'll find 1 John. We're going to be in chapter 2. But before I read, I don't don't know if any of you are familiar uh, with the TV show This Is Us. It's kind of a new hit show, kind of landed last year, made a pretty big splash. Um, we love it in our household. It's about a family, about a husband and wife named Jack and Rebecca and their three kids. And there was this episode, and it kind of started out with this scene, and then I feel like might be very familiar with many of you in here. It's the morning time. Uh, the kids have just been sent off to school. And Jack is in in the kitchen. He's grabbing his coffee. And Rebecca, his wife, is down there. And they're kind of doing their their morning debriefing. Uh, This might happen in your household as well before the day goes. And and Jack is, you could tell he's got a lot on his mind. And he's he's talking to Rebecca about this work thing. And then Rebecca reminds him that, hey, don't forget the boys got a football game this afternoon. You can't miss it, you know. And he's going like, well, how am I going to make the football game? I've got this work thing. What do I do? So they're kind of talking about that. And you can, you can sense the tension is starting to rise just a little bit. Well, then Rebecca, she kind of says, well, don't forget, I've got this, this music audition. She's trying to kind of restart her music career. 
and she's very nervous about it, but Jack kind of dismisses her anxiety, which bothers her because he doesn't make a big deal about it, and she was really wanting a little bit more spousal support. And so you just, the whole scene, you can feel the tension, the stress, the anxiety, the worry. It's just kind of building up to this point. And then Jack grabs his, his briefcase and his cup of coffee, and he heads towards the door. And as he opens the door, he kind of hears Rebecca from the kitchen say, Jack, and he turns around, he's like, what? <laughs> she's like, aren't you forgetting something? And he kind of looks at his coffee, looks at his briefcase, and she's just kind of flabbergasted. And he's like, am I missing something? And she kind of just points to her lips. And he's like, oh. so he walks back, gives her a kiss, goodbye. And the very next scene is him slouched over in a chair in his buddy's office, and he's like, what is wrong with you? He's like, you know what? In over 15 years, I've never forgotten to kiss my wife goodbye before I've gone to work. And I can't believe this was the day that I forgot. All these different plates spinning. You've got family responsibilities. You've got relationship responsibilities. You've got work responsibilities. And there's just this massive potential for disappointment, discouragement. There's just this potential to be defeated and crushed by everything that is weighing in on you. And my question is, is have you ever felt like that? Is that scene at all familiar with you in your life at any point? I would imagine so. And here's the thing. The question is, you have so many responsibilities, so many things vying for your attention and for your affection. And the question is, is how am I supposed to keep this up? How am I supposed to keep it going? What am I supposed to do when I feel the weight where I'm going to be where I feel like I'm defeated and crushed? And here's what I want you to think about it before we read. That's a window into what our passage is about. John, and to kind of give you some context, John has just finished writing about how a person can know that they know that they're Christians. So in the first part of chapter 2, he gives kind of two tests that you can know that you're absolutely certain that you're a Christian. And the test is this, do you look like Jesus and do you love like Jesus? That's the test. And John wrote it as a means of encouragement and a source of confidence for the Christian. But here's the rub. When you look at your life, and when I take a survey of my own life, here's the reality. (laughs) So often is the case, I don't look like Jesus and I don't love like Jesus. And it's disappointing. And it's crushing. And there's all these insecurities and these feelings of inadequacies. And it's a real struggle. And the question is, is how am I supposed to keep this up in the Christian life? It's so hard. How am I expected to look like Jesus and to love like Jesus when my day in and day out, it's a struggle. It's a fight. Well, here's the thing. 
John in our passage, you have to remember, it's so easy to walk away from chapter 2 feeling disappointed and discouraged, but John anticipates this because John is a pastor. And he knows his people. He knows how to care for them and how to love them. And so he anticipates this potential for discouragement, this potential to be um, perhaps disenchanted with the Christian life. He anticipates it. So there's this sort of interruption in chapter 2. And it, even in your Bible, I would imagine it's out of place. The way it's even written. And what I want you to understand this morning is that John kind of interrupts the potential for discouragement and disappointment with a benediction. Because he knows that for any Christian... It's a struggle to look like Jesus and to love like Jesus. So John anticipates the feelings of inadequacies and uncertainties. He interrupts us with a benediction, a reminder. So what is that reminder that John wants us to hear this morning? We'll give your attention to 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. This is what the Apostle John writes. He says, I'm writing to you, little children... Because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know Him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the Father. I write to you fathers because you know Him who is from the beginning. And I write to you young men because you are strong. And the Word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God, they will stand forever. Let's pray before we consider it this morning. Lord Jesus, um, it's our prayer that the words of my mouth and the meditations uh, of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the question. What do discouraged Christians need to do? If that's you this morning, you're you're discouraged, you're, you're frustrated, there's insecurities, there's inadequacies that you feel when you take a survey of your life as a Christian... What is it that Christians are called to do? Did you notice John in our passage, he says, he writes this six times, I'm writing to you, and then three times he essentially says something twice. What is it that John, as a pastor, is writing to us, potential discouraged Christians, to do? And here's what I want to suggest. John is is writing to you and to me, to remember. He's saying if you don't look like Jesus and you don't love like Jesus, it's because you've forgotten something that is foundational to who you are. He wants us and he's calling us this morning to remember. What is it that he's calling us to remember? And this is what I want to suggest. He's calling us to remember what our position is. So if you take notes, you'll be happy that there's only one point. All I want to do this morning is look at our position that John wants us to remember. Now, there are 
three things to that position. What is it that John wants us to remember about our position? The first is this. Look again at verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. John says the first thing about our position that you must remember is this. Your sins are forgiven. Have you remembered that in Christ, your sins, all the ways in which you have failed to look like Jesus and to love like Jesus, both in the past and on the way to church this morning, and what you will fail to do tomorrow, all of those ways in which you have sinned against God, they've been forgiven. But not according to your name. Did you notice what John says? It's not according to your merit or to your strength or to, to how sincere you may be. But it's according to His name's sake. In other words, John is saying, have you forgotten that it was the Father who sent Jesus in order to accomplish your forgiveness. That it, your forgiveness that's in your possession is based on and will only ever be based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Have you forgotten that your sins are forgiven? In other words, John is saying, have you forgotten how loved you are by the Father through the work of Jesus? That the Father's posture towards you is always one of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. John is saying what discouraged Christians need to remember is that the Father loves you. That, his sin, that your sins have been forgiven in Christ. Now, a friend of mine told me a story recently about a very well-known pastor. Um, he would probably, if you were to ask him, he would hate the label celebrity pastor, but he's a very well-known pastor. And the story's about his, his son who, before he became a Christian, was, in, was a musician. And his son would travel all throughout the United States and perform in different places and venues and things like that. And one of the things that his dad would always do was he would call. He would kind of figure out where his son was playing. And if he knew of a local church there or knew a pastor there, he would call that local church or that pastor and say, Hey, my son's in town. He's not a Christian. He's playing at such and such a venue. Would you go and invite him out to dinner? I'll get you free tickets, dinner's on me, but would you just go and kind of show him some hospitality while he's in your town? That was kind of his practice when his son was, was a musician. And so this friend of mine who was telling me this story, it happened to be his brother-in-law who got that phone call from this pastor, and he and his wife ended up taking him up on the offer. So they went to the, the show of, of, of his son, and then afterwards they went out to dinner. And it was during dinner, they're, you know, they're, they're enjoying a good meal and talking about his life and his music. And, and my friend's brother-in-law, he noticed that many of the songs that the son performed and, and lots of the lyrics were, were mocking Christianity, kind of mocking um, his father's faith, his father's religion. And so this guy over dinner just says, you know what, I... This may sound, you know, too, too personal, whatever, but can I ask you a question? He's like, yeah, sure. He goes, I noticed that 
many of your songs mock Christianity. And I just, I know your dad's a, a Christian minister. And um, he goes, can I ask you, like, what do you think about your dad? And the son, without hesitation, said, man, my dad is my hero. No one has ever loved me like my dad has loved me. I've never gotten over that story because here you have a rebellious son who mocks his father's faith, mocks his father's God, and in his own rebellion and mockery knows without a shadow of a doubt that his father loves him beyond anything he could ever imagine. And do you know what John is saying to you this morning? He's saying, have you forgotten the costly love of the Father shown to you in the person and work of Jesus Christ? That your Father's posture towards you is one of love and grace. That that is what he thinks of rebellious children who often don't look like his son and don't love like his son. John says there's forgiveness according to his namesake. If you are in Christ this morning, that is what's most true about you, that in your possession you have forgiveness, both for your past, present, and future sins. And John says don't ever forget that. You need to remember that. But secondly, there's something else John says about our position. And I'm going to steal an expression from a friend of mine who says, John is saying you're not just a forgiven old you, but you are a forgiven new you. Look again at verses 13b and 14b. He says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. John says that you have overcome the evil one because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. Now, what is John talking about here? What does he mean when he says that the word of God abides in you? I'm very thankful for Tim Keller's insights on this. He's a pastor in our denomination, actually recently retired pastor on the East Coast. Um, But in a number of places, and actually it's very fitting that we read from Colossians because this is one of those places earlier, but a number of the places in the New Testament, the Word of God, that phrase, the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit are interchangeable. So in our passage in Colossians, actually, it said, may the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And if you flip over to the equivalent passage in Ephesians, Paul says in the very same way, he says, let the Holy Spirit, dwell in you. And then he goes on to talk about, and out of that, you'll have thanksgiving, and you'll sing psalms and hymns to one another. There's many different places throughout the New Testament where you see this. Another place is in the Gospel of John, where John says that the way in which you are born again, it comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. But then if you go over to First Peter, First Peter talks about that the way in which someone is made alive in Christ is by the imperishable seed, which is the Word of God. In other words, when John comes and he says that you are strong and that you've overcome the evil one and it's the Word of God that dwells in you or abides in you, that's another way of saying that the Holy Spirit 
The Spirit of God's truth has taken up residence in your heart. Jesus tells us that the person of the Holy Spirit, the great Comforter, is the one who comes to abide in us. And John is simply taking up that same language. And the question is this, why is anyone strong? Why has anyone ever overcome the evil one? Is it because of our own strength? Because of our own wisdom? Because of our own affluence or our own... No. I don't think anyone would ever admit that, especially if you're a Christian. It's because of the work of God by the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's the reason why anyone is strong. That's the reason why anyone is overcome. The reason why John brings this up is because he wants to remind us that the very lifeblood, the very DNA of God dwells in you. Let that wash over you for a second. John is he's saying don't ever forget that if you're in Christ, that means that the third person of the Trinity, who is fully God, dwells in you. That's the reason why you're strong and overcome. He says, don't ever forget that. Don't ever live like you're unaware of the fact that the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in you. John is looking to potentially discourage Christian and he's saying, have you forgotten who's taken up residency in your heart? Are you unaware of who's actually alive in you right now? There's this great documentary I saw a couple of years ago called uh, Searching for Sugar Man. If you haven't seen it, I'm about to ruin it for you. But it's a story about the musician named Rodriguez. Uh, Rodriguez was a musician in Detroit and uh, unbelievable um, a musician, fantastic lyricist. He kind of had this Dylan-esque persona, had a way with words and really would speak to kind of the political climate of his day. But his, his music never made a big splash here in the States, so much so that his music career never took off and he had to continue to, to work kind of low-paying construction jobs, kind of lived really below the poverty line in Detroit, uh, never amounted to much as a musician. But somehow his record, one of his records, made its way to South Africa during a time of some very um, strenuous political times in South Africa. And his music kind of spoke to that climate, so much so that it became kind of this cult classic where everybody kind of adopted Rodriguez as their voice in the political climate. And here's what's fascinating. Rodriguez had no idea how famous he'd become in South Africa. But the other thing that was so fascinating was this. The South Africans thought Rodriguez was dead. So here you have this hero in South Africa who they think is dead, and Rodriguez is living below the poverty line, and he has no idea how famous he is in South Africa until one day two record store owners in South Africa begin to do a little bit of research, and they all of a sudden realize that Rodriguez is not dead. <laughs> and they get in touch with him via his daughter. And they somehow plan a meeting, and they try and convince Rodriguez, 
hey, you don't realize how famous you are in South Africa. And he didn't believe it until they flew him over and he played six sold-out shows to South African fans for the last, over the last 20 years. Unbelievable story that you have one man who's completely unaware of how famous he is on a, on a whole other continent, and then you have a whole continent who's completely unaware that their hero is alive. And I thought about that story because so much of my life as a Christian is living completely unaware of the fact that God, the Holy Spirit, lives and dwells within me. John is looking to potentially discouraged and disenfranchised Christians, and he's saying, do you not know that the same Spirit who hovered over the deep, dark abyss in creation and made order out of chaos, beauty out of nothing... That same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead now lives and dwells within you? He says, that's your position. The very vitality and lifeblood of uh, of the Holy Spirit lives and dwells within you. So what do you do with that? Well, are there things that you have tried and tried and tried to overcome? Have you ever prayed that prayer, this is the last time I'm going to do this or that? And then you find yourself the very next day, actually maybe the very next moment, doing that very thing that you said you were never going to do? Whether you're a parent and you're saying, you know what, I'm never going to scream at my child again. And then you find yourself screaming at your child again. Have you ever just finally said, you know what? This is going to be my thorn in the flesh. I might as well give up. I can't change. And here's what I want to push against. Because I've said those things and I've thought those things, but when I do those things, what I'm doing is I'm devaluing the work of Jesus and forgetting that the Holy Spirit, who is the agent of transformation to make me look more like Jesus and to love like Jesus, I forget that He's at work. And I begin to devalue that work as a Christian. And John is saying, don't ever forget that. That change and transformation, it does happen. Not fully, at least on this side of heaven, but there is progress in the Christian life. You're strong. You've overcome the evil one because the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in you. That's the second thing. But lastly... Look again at verses 13a and 13c. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. The third great truth that John wants discouraged Christians to understand and to remember is that God is their father. That you've been adopted by him that you're loved by Him, that you belong to Him, that you know Him to be your Father. That is your most fundamental position in the Christian life, that you've been adopted by your Father in Heaven. And there's so many things that we could say about that, but one that I want to encourage you with is, is this. When you've been adopted by God the Father, that means that Jesus Christ is your elder brother. 
And if Jesus Christ is your elder brother, that means that he's not ashamed to call you his sibling. If you're discouraged, or if you're insecure, or if you lack the confidence, or if you're embarrassed, because when you take a look at your life and you don't look like Jesus and you don't love like Jesus, I want you to know that because you've been adopted by God the Father, and because Jesus is your elder brother, he is not embarrassed by you. He's not embarrassed to call you his own sibling. And God the Father's not embarrassed to claim you as his own. That you're loved by him. That you belong to him. You've been adopted because he's your father. Russell Moore is a professor at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And he and his wife adopted a a son, a boy from, from Russia many years ago. And he writes about the process of adopting their son, and one of the first couple of trips they were they took to Russia, um, he, he talks about how he remembered walking down the hallway with the staff through this orphanage in Russia. And he said, what was striking wasn't the stench. He said, that was bad enough. It, it could actually make you squalor and vomit. He says, but that wasn't what was the most surprising, the most alarming. He says, what was most alarming was the silence. He said he's walking through an orphanage and there were no cries, there were no sounds, there were no noises. And he goes on to write, he says, um, he pulled his wife Maria's elbow as they're walking down the hall and he says, why is it so quiet? The place is filled with babies. He says, if we listened carefully enough, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth, the crib slats gently bumping against the walls. You see, these children did not cry because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their call for food, for comfort, or for love. No one ever responded to these children, so they stopped. He goes on, The silence continued as we entered the boys' room. Little Maxim, now Benjamin, stood straight at attention, but did not make a sound. We read books, sang to him, told him how much we were looking forward to having him be our son and us to be his parents. But there were no cries, no squeals, no groans. Every day we left at the appointed time and in the same way we entered, silence. But on the last day of the trip, they had to tell their soon-to-be son goodbye. By law, they had to return to the United States and wait for all this legal paperwork to be completed. And so after hugging and kissing him, they walked out to the quiet hallway as Maria shook with tears. And that's when they heard the scream. Little Maxim fell back in his crib and let out a guttural yell. It seemed he knew, maybe for the first time, that he would be heard. That on some level, he knew that he had someone who cared about him and loved him. I share that story because I want you to understand that John is writing to potentially discouraged Christians who don't look like Jesus and who don't love like Jesus often, but who were once orphaned by their own sin. And John is saying, do not ever forget that it was your father who came in and he adopted you. But it was your Father in Heaven 
who wants you to remember that you belong to Him, that you're cared for by Him, that you're loved by Him. Do not ever be afraid, John is saying, to cry out to your Heavenly Father because He is always kind and He is always loving and He will never reject the cries of His children who need their help. John says you must remember your position, that your sins are forgiven, the Holy Spirit lives and dwells within you, and that God is your Father. So what do we do with this? Well, a couple of things. First, did you notice how John brings to the forefront the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit? It's actually quite fascinating what John is actually saying that Christians need to do and to remember is they need to remember the work of the Trinity. That they need to remember the wonder and work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, John is simply calling Christians back to delighting in the work and the beauty and the wonder of our triune God. This triune God has invited you into absolute fellowship and love with Him where true joy is is made complete in Him. So John's just simply inviting us back into that kind of reality to delight in the wonder and work of the Trinity. But the other thing is this. Who is John addressing in these verses? Is he writing to literal children, young men and fathers, and he just doesn't care about women at all? No, I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think what John is doing, and this is probably the most encouraging thing for me as a Christian, is that he's, he's reminding us that the Christian life, it happens over a lifetime. And that children, young men, and fathers are just stages and phases in any one person's Christian life. And he's saying, you do not need to forget young children, infants in the faith, those who've just started following Jesus, don't ever forget that your sins are forgiven. Because you're going to be one day struggling with old, the old you. And you're going to need to remember that Jesus doesn't count those sins against you, but that He's paid for. Or if you're here and you've actually been following Jesus for 10, 20, 30 years... What you've discovered is that you're well aware that it's a fight, that it's a struggle, that it's a battle. And John's saying, look, young men, young women, you're strong. You've overcome the evil one. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives in you. Don't forget that in this battle, you actually have God at work in you. Or if you're an older Christian, someone who perhaps is closer to seeing Jesus face to face than someone who's younger. And you've just lived in this broken and fallen world for such a long time and you've felt the effects for a long, long time. John is saying to the fathers and to the mothers and to the grandmothers, to the elders. 
He's saying, don't forget that you know Him who's from the beginning. That though yourself is wasting away, your inner self is being renewed day by day, and soon you will see face to face what Father's smiles are yours. The Christian life happens over a lifetime. It takes a long time for anyone to look like Jesus and to love like Jesus. And that's actually really good news. Especially for those who are discouraged, who feel their insecurities and inadequacies. The good news for us this this morning is that our great God will never ignore our childish ways, but He will gently and lovingly lead us to maturity. He knows that it takes a long time to look like Jesus and to love like Jesus. And that's good news for you and for me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, on any given day, the amount of insecurity and guilt and shame that sometimes we feel because we don't honor you, uh, we don't serve you in the way in which we know, we don't love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. On any given day, there is the potential for lacking assurance, for listening to the voice of condemnation that comes from the great accuser. There is potential just to be discouraged and to forget because so often we have spiritual amnesia. But would you take these words from 1 John and would you write them upon all of our hearts so that in those moments of of discouragement and disappointment, of, of feeling crushed and weighed down by the brokenness of this fallen world and the struggles of just dealing with our own residue of sin, would these words come to mind and we might remember the work God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that we would remember our position so that we might find you to be our source of strength and encouragement and that we might find a rest in you. And we can't do that on our own, so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take these words and you would write them upon all of our hearts. Would you do that for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.